thanks for making me sound like a stalker and a psycho and someone who controls the purse strings. Appreciate that. We have a joint Facebook account, my wife and I. We have joint bank, bank accounts, and, um, and so there's kind of no secrets in that sense, but uh, she left me um, on Friday for, for two days. Uh, this is the, coming into the third day now. Um, by the time church is finished, it will have been you know, quite a long time. And um, I don't really stalk her, right? I mean, it's just that I, I do have some fiscal responsibility to keep an eye on our bank account and what's happening. And I just happened to look at the balance yesterday, and it was quite a bit smaller than I thought it would be for this time of the month. And, um, and then I saw just curiosity, really. There was some withdrawals, and it had different names and things besides them, which I didn't recognize. So I thought, oh, I wonder what those are. It must be something to do with Ruth. So I thought those names along the side, I'd just Google the names comma Wellington <laughs> and so many pages came up on different restaurants and cafes and a bar and <laughs> so you know and I'm I'm sitting at home by myself <laughs> eating peanut butter sandwich yeah that's got nothing to do with anything hello everybody So I could carry this on for half an hour. That's frightening to me and probably terrifying for you. Um, I can talk about the sex life of a rock for half an hour without repeating myself, and that's a really frightening sermon too, but not today. But it is an interesting one. That's how I explain the facts of life to my children. Rocks are safer than animals, believe me. A balancing act. In my loneliness of the last few days... I had a lot of time on my own, and um, I decided I'd go for a lonely little ride on my motorbike by myself, and I parked near a park so I could just see people (laughs) in a stalker kind of way. (laughs) And there was these two kids on a seesaw, and uh, one was a big kid. I mean, they were similar age, but one was a big kid, and the other was a little skinny kid. And if you've ever been in that situation, particularly as a child on a seesaw, when you're either the really big kid or you're the really little kid, seesaws kind of aren't much fun. If you're the big kid, you spend all your time basically sitting on the ground squatting. And if you crank your legs really hard, you'll lift off a little bit, but then you come crashing down much faster than you went up. And if you're the little kid on the other end, You just about fly over the handles, and it's just not fun. And if the big kid decides to be annoying, he can just stay sitting there, and the little kid's stuck in the air. God help the little kid if the big kid, when he's sitting down the bottom, if he decides just to jump off. And anyone here, does this ring any bells? Is there anyone this hasn't happened to? Because... um, we do have people here who um, are quite good at trauma counseling and stuff and, and PTSD and things like that. But anyway, when I was sitting there on my own, that's when I thought about the message I was wanting to talk about today. And I was looking at these kids on the seesaw and it brought back all of these childhood memories. Um, I was usually the bigger kid, just so you know, but it brought back all sorts of memories anyway. 
And so I thought, the way we live a Christian life is a balancing act. And there's a whole lot of kind of different perspective and things. And I started um, thinking about how I try and live my Christian life and how has that changed? I'm 64 years of age. Uh, for those who don't know me, thank you. I know I look really good for 64. Who would have thought? And I became a Christian at 20. So I've been a Christian for more than two-thirds of my life. I was converted at 20, so I've been a Christian for about 44 years, something like that. And it's been quite a journey from a certain place to a certain place. Because, you see, when I was a small child, my, my father was a very angry person. And uh, for his own reasons, hurt people hurt people. I was five years of age, and I was trying to make a kite, and it didn't work. And I lost my temper, and I smashed the sticks, and I rolled it up into a ball, and I kicked it and thought, hey, it's flying. Um, no, I didn't. And I kicked it across the, the backyard, and my dad saw me do it, and he saw I'd lost my temper because I was one of those kids. And he came out, and he said to me in a really angry, loud voice, he said, you useless little bee, you'll never do anything right, will you? And he absolutely meant it. And as a five-year-old, as you'd know, when you're a child, you're wet cement. And the things that people say and the harsh things that people inflict on you it basically writes something in that wet cement. And if it's not fixed quite quickly, the cement goes hard and you're kind of stuck with it. And it's kind of like a, a default position in your life. Now, you may put more cement over it, you may cover it over, and nobody else knows what's under that layer of cement, but you always do. And you may learn to live your life by... Um, not referring to that and not consciously thinking about it, but at one level you still know it's under there, right? Because children are wet cement. So this is the introduction um, to the sermon. And as Christians, this is balancing act, and I just want to ask a couple of questions. Have you ever felt, if you are a Christian, and I don't assume that everybody is, or that everybody isn't, but if you are Christian or not, do you ever feel like you kind of don't pray enough um, or you kind of don't, you know, read your Bible enough or maybe you don't share your faith, your Christian faith with other people enough and have those kind of God conversations? Um, and do you ever feel like ultimately you're probably not uh, a very good Christian? Uh, I don't want any show of hands on that, um, but I wonder if that kind of rings with one or two here. Because the way my father said you're a useless little bee and you'll never do anything right, it set me up for thinking that no matter how well I'm doing or what I'm engaged in and where I'm kind of going, ultimately I'm going to stuff it up. The hammer's going to fall and the thing I'm trying to do with the best of intentions will end up an absolute disaster at best or mediocre um, or perhaps mediocre at best and a disaster at worst. Because you're kind of waiting for this thing to kind of reveal itself or this prophecy that's been engraved in the wet cement of your heart to come to life. And I would say for probably the first 15 years as a Christian until I was about 35, um, we'd been on the mission field for some years in New Guinea. We were pastoring an ex-church up in Golden Bay and I was 35 years of age, so I'd been a Christian 15 years and had done some theological study and had been involved in missions and ministry and whatever. And I realized this was still who I am. 
I'm still waiting for the day where they say, oh, Mike, you know, you're cool, you're funny, you know, um, you're a hard case and you're quite a good preacher, teacher, pastor, whatever, but I know something about you or last week you just blew your whole reputation by doing this or that or, or whatever. And you keep sitting there just waiting for that hammer to fall. It's a terrible place to live. And so around the world, um, and probably around about the late 1990s or around the 2000s, which is kind of in the realm when I'm talking about, I was 35 and blah, 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 blah. People got sick and tired of that feeling in their lives. They also got sick and tired of a Christianity that was very black and white. You're either in or you're out. And the Bible very clearly says, and you think, oh, here we go. And people got tired of it, and it was just such a pressure to look like, act like, be like everybody else, be stamped out of this cookie-cutter Christian mold so you all look the same, act the same, think the same, believe the same, dance the same, dress the same. And there was a rebellion against that because a lot of people felt like crap because they'd say, this is what I feel I have to be and I have to agree with and I have to go along with this and do this and this. Otherwise, I'm not accepted in this community. And if I'm not really accepted as committed to this community, then where am I? This is the closest I've got to belonging. And so it was monkey see, monkey do. But there was a rebellion against that happened in the late 1990s. And it probably came out of the States first, but it went through the West where people started saying, you know what? It's actually about grace. It's actually not so much about behavior as it is about belonging. And it's actually that God has poured his love out on us and he knows that we're not perfect. Jesus lived a perfect life, so I don't have to. And we'd kind of all agree with that. Thank God he did. Thank God he does. Thank God that I don't have to because I can't. And I need a savior. But that then progressed around the end of the 90s until about 2000. It progressed and it changed into something else. It became this bumper sticker called a fire alarm bumper sticker. And I don't know how to disengage that, but it's pointless talking while it's happening, so I'm just going to look at you. Amen. We don't have to evacuate. Well played, sir. And so this Christianity started to shift where people started saying it's actually more about grace than looking like, acting like, being like, being exactly like this. It's actually about God accepts me as I am, warts of and all, which is true too. But it started to move further to I don't even care about my warts. And it progressed to a stage where there was bumper stickers, and I had one on my car back in the early days when weird Christian Pentecostal evangelicals used to put bumper stickers on their car thinking it was a good witness until you pulled up doing 140 k's with the sticker on the back. But anyway, and the traffic cops are Christian. Whew. Anyway, um, that's a whole different thing, yeah. Um, but the bumper sticker said things like, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And I used to think, yeah, because it's true. But it's not the whole truth. Because a whole lot of Christians then started to evolve into, it's not up to me, it's up to God. If he's got a problem with my behavior or my attitudes, or my beliefs or something, he will work on it. It's none of your business. Who do you think you are to judge me? And so it became something other. 
And oh my gosh, as a pastor of a church, um, it was fraught with difficulties. And I think, which did I prefer? The more legalistic adherence to a set of rules and, and black and whites? Or do I like this grace-filled, kind of warm, fuzzy, accept everybody on their own terms thing? Which is better? I couldn't tell. Where did I sit? Which camp did I prefer to be in? Well, sometimes I preferred to be in this camp here, which says it's all about grace. It's all about love. It's all about acceptance. It's not about performance, etc., etc. And other times I'm like, the word of God clearly says, and I want it to be here. So there's my second introduction. If you can do four or five finalies, um, but I better move on. This is in my notes. Mike Iaconelli, um, it's a little bit fuzzy, the printing, but actually looks better up there than it did on my computer. Um, Mike Iaconelli, um, around about 2002, he wrote this book. And um, one of the things Mike Iaconelli said was, and he talked about messy spirituality, uh, was the title of the book. And... Um, He said, the power of the church is not a parade of flawless people, but of a flawless Christ who embraces our flaws. The church is not made up of whole people, rather of broken people who find wholeness in Christ who was broken for us. Um, I like that. But it's not the whole story. And he came out in this wave of change that seemed to affect a lot of Western Christianity. Sadly, he died a year after he published that book in 2003. He was helping his um, father and his wife move some furniture, and he had a heart attack and crashed his truck and, and died. I don't know if that was messy spirituality, but um, quite a sad thing to happen. Um, and so he, he wrote that book. If you haven't read it, it's a good read. And I loved it, and it really helped me a lot with understanding some things back around 2000, 2002, something like that when it came out. Um, but as I was reflecting just the other day when I was looking at those kids on the seesaw, I was thinking about something else and I was thinking, but it's not the whole story. There is a messy spirituality. There is a sense where, you know, um, God embraces our flaws, etc., etc. And I just love that song that we were singing. Um, actually, just before I go to that, that song we were singing and that refrain, um, I make, how did it go? I make um, room, is it? I've handwritten it. I can't read my own writing. Um, meet me, meet me here. All I, all I want is your presence. And another part was, um, you have all my attention. And uh, I loved that chorus. But as I was singing it, God spoke very clearly to me through that chorus, and He said, "Ditto, Mike." I'm like, "What?" And He says, "Well, you can flip that on its head." And Jesus was saying to me, "I make room for your presence, Mike." I've gone to prepare a place for you. I make room for your presence. And all I want, Jesus was saying to me, is all I want is your presence. All I want is your attention. And uh, that was a really interesting um, kind of a little flip-flop for me. And this is what's kind of happened with this sermon. We... Uh, or should I say the leadership had decided at some stage we're going to do this whole block on Galatians, so I'm not going to do huge teaching on it, but um, we were kind of thinking about Galatians and how we were going to do it as a kind of a series, and because of lockdown and everything else, it's kind of, we thought, oh, we'll go topical for a while and we'll sort of put that on hold a wee bit. But anyway, 
I'd already been doing some reading, so I thought, well, it seems stupid not to use it because it just fitted in so nicely. And Paul sounds a little bit frustrated. Oh, you foolish Galatians. Who has tricked you? You were, past tense, doing so well. Before your very eyes, Christ Jesus was clearly potatoes crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? And this is where the swing seemed to happen in Western Christianity. Is they were saying, well, what that means, it's so easy to get caught in the do this and do that and look like, act like, sound like, etc., etc. It's very easy to get into that state and forget actually it's about believing and it's about relationship, and it's by a spiritual transaction, not by the outside copying of customs and laws and rules and things. So I kind of get where Paul's going. Don't forget, Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the master Pharisee. He was such a legal, religious person, and he worked his life to follow the law, to obey the law, and then he decided to step it up, and he started persecuting those who he thought were enemies of the law. Uh, as in the new Christian movement that was around. And then he got soundly uh, converted on the road to um, Damascus and had to do a 180 degree in his own belief structures. And I don't want to read this whole passage out because it's, it's a long passage, but most of you are familiar with Romans 6. And I just highlighted a few parts, and Paul is asking questions. So, you know, should we go on sinning? Because, you know, there's grace for sin. So does that mean if there's more sin, there's more grace? So don't work on getting better. Just work on, you know, receiving more grace. And then you think, well, no, that's stupid. By no means. And then he goes on a bit further and he says, we too may live a new life. And then he goes on and talks about our old self being crucified and ruled by sin. And he says, we'll no longer be slaves. So don't forget a slave is under rule. A slave is under compulsion, and he doesn't have any choices. He can't help what he does. He just has to do what he has to do. He doesn't have any free will um, or free agency to, to take his own initiatives. And that's what Paul is saying, is that we were slaves, but we're no longer under this obligation where we have no choices. We have choices, and we can become ourselves. Uh, the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. Dead to sin, but alive to God. Do not let sin reign. Paul didn't say be sinless. Do not let sin reign. You're no longer a slave, you now have a choice. And that's the difference. And so when I think I have a choice, whether I let sin take dominion or reign over me or not, when I start thinking like that, I start looking at my whole life differently. If I have a choice about not letting sin reign over my life, then I can't just passively say, oh, hey, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. So, yeah, yeah, I know I do this and that, and I've got these problems in my life, but hey, I'm human, right? You know, until Jesus comes back, I guess you're kind of stuck with me the way I am. It's not good enough. And you don't have to. 
however. And there's always a however, isn't there? So this is part two. There's another perspective. So there's a messy spirituality, and I I like messy spirituality. I'm a messy person. I don't have a logical bone in my body. I've got the IQ of a cabbage pretty much. So I like to go with my feelings and rules, what rules? Line, what line? You're talking about drawing a line in the sand. Where's the sand? Let alone drawing a line in it. So that's more my predisposition. So a messy spirituality probably is the way that I lean because it's easier and I don't have to keep a record or tick that I've done this and done that and et cetera, et cetera. However, it's not the whole picture because a seesaw is designed to go up and down on both ends. A seesaw is designed to have some kind of balance so that at certain points, the seesaw seats are horizontal and level because that's the fun part, whether you're going up or down. There's meant to be some form of balance, not the big kid on one end and the little skiddy kid on the other end saying, let me down, let me down. And then the big kid says, you want to get let down? Okay, and he leaps off. However, and so there's this whole thing of works and grace and people saying, well, you know, it's all about grace. No, it's not. It's also about works and doing stuff and living in a certain way, and believing, and responding, and acting, and taking initiatives. And one action that I have to do quite a lot in works is I'm apologizing to people. I don't know why people get offended so easily. I mean, I'm a nice guy. I'm one of the nicest people I've ever met, but people misunderstand. And I just try and extend them grace. But it's a balancing act constantly. And uh, this is a very simple equation, and uh, I'm not a mathematician. Um, But I looked at this, and I could understand the maths of this. If you have something like a seesaw, and one of the kids weighs 20 kilos, and the other kid weighs 5 kilos. He was a really little kid, okay? But one's 20, and one's 5 kilos. The only way that seesaw can work is if you move the balance point, or you move the fulcrum, one way or the other. Now, there's a mathematical principle there, and we won't even bother going into that except to say um, 2 times 20 kilograms equals 40, and um, 5 times 8 meters equals 40. So 40 and 40, that means it balances. So you know, oh, I have to put the fulcrum way over that side on the 2-meter thing and 8 meters out that side. for the. If you had a seesaw like that, the big kid and the little kid would have had all sorts of fun. And if you just change that analogy just a little bit to works and grace, and God is the balancing point. He's the fulcrum, or he's the thing that causes it to tip and tilt. What do they call a seesaw in America? Teeter-totter. Teeter-totter. I don't want to mock the Americans, but it's a seesaw. Because when I'm up, I see, and when I'm down, I saw. See, saw, see, saw. I don't know what it's got to do with teeter-totter, teeter-totter, but anyway, we're not going to get racist here. (laughs) Works and grace. And God is the pivot point or the balance point or he's the fulcrum to do we go by an allegiance to look and do and act and be or do we go by a grace that says accept and understand and support Yeah, we do. But in my life, 
the either-ors are such that sometimes God shifts. God moves. He moves by his spirit in this world. He moves by his spirit in this church. And he actually moves by his spirit in my life. And there are times when God says to me, this is not going to work. The balance is wrong. And you don't even know the balance is wrong because you're a mere human, but I can see the end from the beginning. And what's going to happen if this balance stays out of order? But God is the one who moves. He shifts the fulcrum or the balancing point in order to make us well-balanced between acceptance and grace and love and works. And it needs both. Where do you think God would be as the fulcrum or the balancing point if there wasn't a weight on one of those ends? I don't know. I can't see it working. I can see God moving along the spectrum from grace to works at different times and backwards and forwards as the need is there or as the things he wants me to focus on or the things I need to be or do or change. But there needs to be a balance on both sides. Does that make sense? And this book here, um, actually more than the book, this is the book that he's kind of quite well known for, if you've heard of Jonathan Routley, um, Eternal Submission. And it's actually a very deep theological book, which um, maybe if you're not really into theology, it's not worth reading, but that's what he's most known for. So I'm not recommending the book necessarily. Um, I'm not even saying I agree with some of the things he says in it, though it's a very interesting read. Um, But what he's known for is being a man of the word. And everything about sin is taken very, very seriously. Um, He looks like a happy chap, uh, but a lot of his writings, he seems more of a zealous chap. There's nothing wrong with that. I used to be a zealot once, 17th of September 1977. Um, Jonathan Routley, but he holds this perspective. He says, sin is not a game. You can't just say Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, or it's all about grace and who do you think you are to judge me? He says, no, sin is actually really important. And we need to recognize it and address it. And he, he gives a lot of examples, but he goes on and says, look, Jesus is talking about this passage and it's not actually about adultery. Jesus just uses that as an example to kind of get the ball rolling, though it's true. But he's talking about how serious this is. This is talking about sin. And he said it's so serious that if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Did I say Paul? Or did I say Jesus in this passage? Mm, Anyway, Um, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Wow. He's not suggesting that we actually do that because um, there'd be a lot of um, disabled people around. In fact, you'd, you'd know they are Christians by their missing limbs. But he's not suggesting that. But what he's just trying to say is sin is so important 
It's more important than that, if that were possible. And so Jonathan Routley is taking the other side, and he's very anti this whole messy spirituality, and, well, you know, I'm just on a journey, and, you know, hopefully I'm going to make it, and God and me are okay, and everything else. Listen, if you have um, issues and struggles in your life, and you feel bad about those things, and you're not winning, you know, in this, and you're not making progress, let me just say at this stage, Jesus doesn't want you to stay there, but if you feel a bit guilty or sad about it or a bit angry or depressed or discouraged or defeated or whatever it is, then God's actually really pleased that you feel like that too. He's saddened and he wants to clean you up and he wants to help you and stuff. But the saddest Christians around are the ones who have stuff that's in their life that is not acceptable to humanity or to themselves or to their wider circles or to Christians or to God or the Bible or whatever. But they just don't care. They blase pass it off. Who's perfect? Nobody's perfect anyway. So, you know, we're just all under grace, right? And, you know, it's between me and God and it's none of your business. And who do you think you are? And let him who's without sin throw the first one. All of this kind of stuff goes on. When we were pastoring a large student church down in Dunedin um, a number of years ago, um, it was right on the campus, so we had heaps of uni students. A lot of them are kids who have left home for the first time, left their little country town, left their mum and dad, and they've left their circle of friends, they've left their church youth groups and stuff, and they've come to Dunedin, and they've got into some of the student halls and some of the student flats, and et cetera, et cetera, right? We kind of know the thing. We're hip, we're cool, even if we're 64. Um, and a lot of them, for some reason, because of the people they first meet and bond with and stuff, they end up not going to church anymore, um, and they end up getting into drinking and drugs and, you know, sex. And this is kind of, sounds terrible, but it's kind of normal student life for a while. A lot of students go and have a bit of a fling. By about August of the first year, those students, just before they'd be going home for their break, the first break they might have had since they came to Otago University in January, February, um, they'd start coming back to church. And the amount of them who would come up the front and be just absolutely distraught, saying, I've just done some really stupid things and I was raised in this kind of a home and my friends and my family and my local church have been praying for me and blah, 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 and I've been doing this, that, and the other one. I've fallen into this, that, and the other one. Now I've got to go home because it's the holidays and, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? How can I face them? And, you know, and what am I going to tell them and everything else? And they were distraught. That is a sign of health, ladies and gentlemen. That is not a sign of sickness. If you've got something like that in your life that you feel guilty or depressed or angry or hurt or upset about or sad about or discouraged, it's a sign of health because it means that the Spirit is still working in you to move things to help you work through and address those things. And if you care about it, it's actually a sign of health. It's not a sign of sickness. Does that make sense? And so when these students would come and, the, you know, there's mucus everywhere and there's snot flying and there's spit and there's tears and everything else, you know, I'd say you're actually in a really healthy place because this concerns you enough that you want God to change. And you know what God does? He often moves that pivot point for us. People who are broken do not need the law. <laughs> they need heaps of grace. The people who need the law are those who are quite proud, and I'm doing okay, thank you very much, and I don't need anyone to tell me. They are seriously in a place where they need the black and white word of the law. But even then, the grace of God is outstanding because the whole point of it 
is that if the law is needed and it's applied to you and it makes you feel bad or it breaks you down or it hurts you or whatever, it's still about grace because grace is for the broken and grace is for the humble to the extent that God will use his word to break the proud so that when they're broken, he can pour on the grace that they need to restore them to a place of health. How cool is that? And so at the end of the sermon, and I, I found myself when I was writing this out and thinking about it, I'm thinking, I'm saying two things. I'm saying there's the whole kind of, you know, strictness of rules and boundaries and, you know, and morals and, and, and following the word of God and the standards and stuff there. That's a thing, but so, so is the other that Jesus wants to give me all his attention, that Jesus has made room for me. He wants to hang with me in relationship, and he loves me, warts and all. And the warts that I want taken care of first may not be the ones that he thinks are that important, but he is the one who decides and he moves. So if there's times in your life where you feel like I'm getting a bit kind of black and white on these things and I'm a little bit legalistic and stuff, just do a check and make sure that you still know where God is because he may have moved that balanced fulcrum point over there for a purpose. And other times you'll feel like, you know what, I just feel so accepted and so loved by God. Even when I'm being a bit naughty, he's still so present. What is that about? Because God has moved the fulcrum as only he can do. But So when I looked at it, I thought, well, I've got two sermons, which I kind of alluded to to someone before the service. But it's not two sermons. It's, is it about works or is it about grace? Yes. Yeah, you're right. It's about works and grace. Sometimes works is necessary more than other times. Other times God says, you know what? It's cool you've been doing all the work and everything else, but uh, I need you to just kind of spend some time with me. Just stop doing the stuff and go on a retreat. Go fishing. Go ride your motorbike and sit in the park and watch some kids on a seesaw. But whether it's works or grace... So often we settle for the second best Christianity where we're making mud pies. And we're sitting there in the, in the backyard. Mud pies are fun, right? They're quite cool. You know, everyone's done it. I don't recommend eating them, but some people say it's actually good for your intestinal system to do so. But we settle for making mud pies. And we settle for this, well, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, in so many areas of our life where we really shouldn't but not so that we whip and castigate and punish ourselves and we're down on ourselves and we're waiting for the hammer of God to fall on us one day in judgment or punishment. But the sadness of it is God is saying, you're playing with mud pies. You're playing in the dirt and it's okay. There's nothing specifically that bad about what you're doing. But I have a beach for you. You can be building sandcastles on this beautiful beach, but you're settling for this mediocre because you think maybe that's as good as it gets. Maybe that's all anyone can expect. I'm still, you know, having fun. I'm still kind of enjoying my life, and God is saying, yeah, but I've got so much more. I've got so much more. Let God move the balance. Let God move the fulcrum in your life between works and grace to a place where he knows you need it. And if it changes next year and you feel like you're in a different place or you're acting differently or you're responding differently to the same kind of things, understand that it's God who's working in your life and he's moving, he's tweaking, he's adjusting. And finally, folks, 
Keep making messy progress. Don't give up. Don't settle for this is as good as it gets. There's more. There's more. You may be in the mud pie brigade. There's more waiting for each one of us. God bless you today.